Well, good afternoon, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's great to see you guys today. I apologize for those of you who received the church center announcement saying that we actually lost an hour, but thank God we actually gained an hour. So maybe that's why some of you are early today. <laughs> it's great to see you guys. And also, I just want to say a praise the Lord for our college ministry. They actually had a retreat, and they just we came back, and I heard it was wonderful. So praise God for that. Amen. And you know, um, oh, by the way, my name is Doug. Uh, in case for you guys, uh, I'm Doug, and I'm one of the pastors who's very privileged to serve here. And again, whether you're an old-timer at Mosaic or whether you're new, first time visiting, uh, we welcome you. Hope you, you experience God's presence powerfully today. Uh, Pastor Dave is actually away on a, on a long-needed vacation uh, with his family. Uh, we told him not to take his laptop, just to go enjoy, but he always so concerned, you know, in heart for our church. So please keep him in your prayer, and he would have a wonderful time a restful time. Uh, okay, so we're, we're going today, continuing in the book of Hebrews, and um, I hope for you guys it has been as um, eye-opening and heart-deepening as it has been for me. Um, I share this in our pastoral staff meeting. On Fridays, we actually go over the passage that we're going to be preaching, and every single time, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm so thankful for the book of Hebrews. It's been such a tremendous blessing, and I really hope that you guys will also continue to go deeper into God's Word. Today we're looking at Hebrews 9, and I cannot possibly cover everything. There's so much there, and so beautiful. And what I hope that will happen is the Holy Spirit will convict you to study it on your own, to read the rest of it and to meditate upon it, because I believe that as you do, your heart's response will be like extravagant thanksgiving and praise to God for what He has done. So I invite you to keep looking at Hebrews 9, even though I cannot cover everything. Uh, before we go into the passage, I just want to remind you what the writer of Hebrews is trying to accomplish here. You see, his fellow Jewish believers, his fellow Jewish Christians, they have gone through tremendous persecution. Some of them that they, he knows have lost their homes, lost their businesses, even lost their lives because they stood for Jesus Christ. And what's happening now among the Jewish Christians is they're being tempted to reject Christ. They're being tempted to deny, to forget about Christ and go back to their old covenant ways of Judaism because it's easier, it's comfortable, at least temporarily. And so because of his love for them, his concern for them, he, he writes out this deep apologetic of why Jesus is greater. And as you remember, he's greater than the law. He's greater than the words of angels. He's greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than any high priest. And last week, Pastor Dave talked about how he's enacted a greater covenant, a new covenant. And so that we continue on with that today in Hebrews 9. Okay? Well, today, as we go into this passage, there's going to be uh, some time where we're going to kind of be a little bit more historical, maybe archaeological. Because often, we who live in modern day, we don't think about what the Jewish people thought about and knew. You know, the, the altar of incense and the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. We don't really think about these things. But for the Jewish people, they're very much aware of it because it's part of their culture. It's part of their upbringing. So hopefully as we go through today's sermon, you will track with me and be able to be like, oh, I understand now. So that we get a greater picture of how great Christ is. Hebrews 9, verse 1 through 15. Please pay careful attention as we go through this together. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. 
It is called the holy place. Everyone say holy place. Okay. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Everyone say most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. God's word to us today. Please take a moment to look at that yourself. So the Hebrew writer begins this portion by saying, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and for earthly place of holiness. Now what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is the covenant that Israel received at Mount Sinai. Right after God had done a tremendous deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt from, that, from those 400 years of slavery, parted the Red Sea, led them into the wilderness, and then there on this mountain, God begins to give Moses this covenant. And within this covenant, there is a reiteration of the important relationship between God and his people Israel. I'm your God, you are my people. He, reiter he reiterates this. But the covenant itself is much more focused upon how the people of Israel will worship him. What the people of Israel must do to honor him, to obey his commandments, to live as a people so distinct that when they enter into Canaan, that they will establish these structures and these systems that will be so distinct that will distinguish them from all the other nations. And as they keep their end of the covenant and obey and follow what God tells them to do, God will bless them so abundantly that all the other nations will say, surely there is a God in Israel and he is the God, Lord of all. So this is what the covenant was talking about, how they must worship him. 
And within that covenant, what God does, he meticulously lays out the details, the measurements, the manners of rituals and sacrifices concerning the tabernacle. And so here we go back into a little bit of a history lesson here. Here is a picture of the tabernacle. It is an artist's rendering, of course. It's also known as the tent of meeting. In the days of King Solomon later on, it becomes built into the temple of God, right? Or the temple of Solomon. So what the people of Israel would do is whenever God says, I want you to stop here in the wilderness, they would erect this tabernacle. Outside would be the, the cloth tent or, you know, wall. And then inside would be the tabernacle. And the people of Israel were only allowed to come up to the tent entrance. The priest would then receive the sacrificial animals, and then they would go in, and there would be an altar, and they would offer the sacrifices. That's what the tent looked like. And every time they had to move, they would close it back up, and then set it up again in the next place God took them. This is the way God wanted Israel to worship the Him and be reminded of His presence with them. Okay? So now let's look into the tabernacle, what it looks like. So remember, we just read that there are two portions to the tabernacle. The larger section is called the holy place. Remember I said holy place. And this is where priests can go in and they would do their rituals. They would do their, you know, services unto God. Lighting the candles, changing out the showbread, cleaning up the altar. But then there's another section in the back. It's called the holy of holies. The most holy place. And in that place, only the high priest was allowed to enter. No other priest could enter, only the high priest and only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. But the high priest dare not enter without blood, lest he be struck down dead. Now, again, God goes into great detail about what the Holy of Holies is supposed to have. We read in Hebrews 9, there is the Ark of the Covenant, which is, you guys have seen Indiana Jones, like the Ark of the Covenant, with the pole, golden poles and the two cherubim on top, and also the altar of incense. That's what is behind there. The Holy of Holies is 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. So it's a cube, pretty much 30, feet, 30 square feet cube. That's what it is. What you'll also read as you read through Exodus is that there are five poles that separate the inner, the Holy of Holies from the most, you know, holy place to the most holy place. There are five poles made out of acacia wood, which is very expensive, very precious. And then they were covered in gold. Now these poles separated these two rooms. And then what they would do is they would take a curtain. They would make a curtain. Woven in the, the finest of wool, dyed in the most beautiful dye, purple, gold, and blue. And they would actually be cherubim sewn in with glue. I mean, with, with gold. Sorry, with gold. Okay, and, and these are actually five separate pieces. And each piece was 28 feet in length, four feet wide. And there were five of them. But even though they were separate, they would be sewn together to make one continuous curtain. And some, some early tradition of Jewish writers would say that the curtain was either between the, the, the width of a man's hand, and not, I'm not sure if it means this or if it means this. Some also early Jewish tradition says it was as wide as three feet thick. That's how thick this curtain was. And after they had sewn the curtains together and make sure that it, it seemed seamless, they would actually attach two ropes to both ends, and then they would attach it to horses, and the horses would go the opposite direction to see if this curtain was integritous, if it would hold. Only after it would hold would they now take that curtain and place it as the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. Now remember, only the high priest could go in 
on the day of Yom Kippur. This is where the glory cloud of God would come down. Let me show you what the high priest looks like. Okay? So the high priest had two, two separate garbs. On the right is what he would wear all the time. Pretty much a high priest would, own, would wear this until the day he dies or unless his time comes, comes to an end and he has to pass it on to somebody else. Just like the temple curtain, all of the pieces are one sewn piece. Like It has to be seamless. The inner garment, seamless. The outer garment, seamless. Each piece is seamless. And if you notice on the chest, he is wearing this um, kind of ephod type thing. And on it are 12 stones. And each of the 12 stones represents a tribe of Israel. So every time the high priest goes in, he's representing God's people before God. Now what the high priest would do is he would go in and he would do all the daily rituals. Light the candles, replace the showbread, clean the place, and then come back in. And this is the reason why he would do it. He wasn't dressed because he was like, oh, check me out, look how much better I am than you. That wasn't it. It was a reminder for the high priest and for all the people of Israel, we are servants of the Most High God. We dress accordingly before God. We don't serve man, we serve God. And think about it, changing the bread, lighting the candles, what are they saying? God, we acknowledge that you are here and we refresh you and we light the room for you. It's a constant reminder of the presence of God. But also what it was to serve was to remind the people of Israel, God is with us. He is in our midst. Now one thing you may not be able to see is at the bottom of the priest's garment, there is gold bell, pomegranate, gold bell, pomegranate, gold bell. Because what God had said to Aaron, the high priest, he said this, if you enter in without my permission or without letting me know, you will be struck dead. You cannot come in any way you like into my presence. It's, it's very different than us, right? Sometimes we like, we barely get here. We're wearing flip-flops, shorts. Uh, we haven't even brushed our teeth. Like, hey, God. N not so with the people of Israel. Not so with the high priest. So every time the high priest would walk in, cling, 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 cling. Again, not because God didn't know he's not there, but so that Aaron would be reminded, I cannot just go in when I want to. I must submit myself in obedience to God's command. Okay? Now what you see on the left side is also known as a holy garment. On the day of Yom Kippur, the high priest would take off this garment and he would put on this garment. After he washed, he would put on this white linen robe, again, all seamless, a sash and a turban on his head, and then he would be sprinkled with blood. And then he would carry a blood of the goat, of, a, of the bull, and he would go in and he would take his blood and sprinkle it on the, on the um, Ark of the Covenant for his sins, the forgiveness of his sins and the sins of the people of Israel. But would God accept it? That's the question. Would God accept it? What happened was, oftentimes, as you start to see some uh, writings of ancient Jewish history, in the Talmud, in the Yoma 19b, which is about the Yom Kippur, there's actually this story about this one high priest who went into the Holy of Holies and he was struck dead. Something he did was unacceptable to God. Also, in Yoma 70a, it speaks of a high, uh, speaks of high priest. Whenever they would come out of the Holy of Holies, they would start to celebrate like, oh, I made it up to God. Because they had not been struck down dead. It was a fearful thing to go into that place without an appropriate sacrifice, without an appropriate heart. It was a fearsome thing. 
Now, again, what I want to do for you is because sometimes, you know, we think about these and we read about it, but we don't necessarily feel like it's part of our life. And what I would like to do is just give you a, a little bit of a reenactment so we can feel like what it feels like to have been there to a certain degree. High priest, I think we have everything ready. But high priest, do you suppose God will accept the sin offering? I truly do not know. For God's people have sinned grievously. Our crops are scarce. We fall to our enemies. And our people turn and worship their gods. Yeah, so many have turned away from the Lord and are worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth. And I fear from my heart, because I have not kept his commandments. If I should perish, please take care of my family. No, say no such thing, high priest. You'll be fine. Bring me the blood of the bull. Yes, high priest. the sins of Israel and for my sins. <sighs> Elohim, Elohim, Rida, Keshua, Shema, Tefillah. No! High priest, high priest, no, high priest, no, no. Who will go in and make atonements for us now? replacement for the high priest. It would be another year until the next high priest is appointed. Another year before the next high priest can be decided. And Israel would wax heavy with the realization that God had not forgiven them of their sins and that their sins remains exposed. See, the uncertainty of the outcome would cause anyone to fear, to tremble. Preparing for this sermon, I was actually telling my wife, honey, what if I actually die when I do this? 
You see, you, you think about this. You knowing the sins of your people, of your fellow peers, and also knowing your own sins and the condition of your heart, would you be the one to go inside and stand before the righteous, holy one of Israel? Would you be the one? You see, God, all throughout Scripture, reveals himself as holy, altogether separate, pure and righteous. And unless he somehow veils himself, anyone who is impure, anyone who has sinned, anyone who is unrighteous will perish in his presence. This is who God is. This is his nature. Like the sun. He, the sun just shines. The sun just burns. Whatever comes near the sun will be disintegrated. Not because the sun wants to burn anybody, but because that is the nature of the sun. In the same way, God is holy. He is holy. That's his nature. If you look directly into the sun, you will blind yourself. And just as ridiculous it would be to say to the sun, hey, sun, stop being so bright. Stop burning. It's just as ridiculous to say to God, God, stop being holy. Lower your holiness a little bit. Israel stands before Mount Sinai. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, even the New Testament. They stand before Mount Sinai, and the presence of God descends upon the mountain with this dark cloud. There's lightning and there's thunder, and the voice of God begins to tremble the whole mountain. And the people of God, Israel, are afraid. They're trembling in fear. Moses comes down with the commandments, and they say to Moses, Moses, in Exodus 20, you talk to us. We don't want to hear from God. It is too scary. And Moses said to them, don't be afraid. God doesn't want you to be afraid. He wants you to draw close. But he wants you to fear so that you may not sin against him. And there is this response of pulling away when you see the holiness and the greatness of God. We look at in Exodus as well. After God gives Moses the directions for setting up the tabernacle, Moses appoints Aaron, his older brother, as the high priest. And Aaron's sons, or the tribe of Levi, they become priests. And Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, become priests. They go into the tabernacle and they decide that they're going to light the altar their own way. They offer strange fire. And it says, at that very moment, fire came out from the altar and killed them, consumed them both. It is a frightful thing to fall into the hands of a righteous God. It's a scary thing. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, he has this vision of God on the last year of the reign of King Uzziah. God is seated on his throne, and above him are two cherubim, and many cherubim, but two particularly. And the two cherubim begin to declare, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as they say that, all of a sudden the foundations begin to shake. And Isaiah says, woe is me, woe is me. I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Prophet Isaiah, trembling in fear, when he stands before the presence of God. But it's not just the Old Testament. We come to the New Testament. Peter encounters Jesus. Remember, Jesus gets onto his boat. Peter has caught nothing all night long, though he's fished. And Jesus says, cast your net into deeper water. And Peter goes, okay, could you say so? And then all of a sudden, there is this miraculous catch of fish, larger than he's ever seen. And Peter's response is what? Go away from me. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. 
This is what happens when the holy, altogether separate, pure, righteous comes in contact with the mortal, sinful flesh. Our hearts tremble in fear. Does God love Isaiah? Does God love Peter? Yes. Does God want Isaiah and God want Peter to be with him? Yes. But this is the response that happens when we come before holy and mighty God. Who is going to enter in? Who is going to go into the Holy of Holies and atone for our sins? We read in, in, in Hebrews 9, 8 9, we read that. That the tabernacle, there's the, the holy place and then the most holy place. And what you notice is the holy place is symbolic for the present age. The present age means earth, us here, flesh. And the most holy place represents the kingdom of God. Heaven, eternity, salvation. And there is this curtain, this impossible divide that separates us. And so it causes us to fear. Now we have two choices when we come to this place of like, do I go back there and do I look at God? And that fear causes two main responses. Number one is either flight, which is what the Israelites did. Don't talk to us. Don't let God talk to us. Moses, you talk to us. Isaiah, Peter, go away from me, Lord. Flight. Or the other response is seeking. I know God is holy. I know God is reverence. What can I do to be with him? What can I do to seek him? You see, some of us in this room, I, and I include myself, I need a good dose of the fear of God. Because some of us, we think we're okay just in ourselves. If there's anybody in this room, if you think you're okay, let me just give you a quick mathematical question. If you just sin once a day, 365 days, right? 365 sins in one year. And if you live for 70 years, how many sins have you committed? 25,570 sins. Is there anyone here who is righteous, who's holy? You see, if we come to this holy place and we go, oh, I can't enter in, but I know that he's holy, it's kind of like David. David says this in Psalm chapter 24, verse 3 through 4. He says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? You hear what David is saying? Like, who can be with you, God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He, he knows God is holy. He knows God is fearsome. But he wants to be with him. But he knows he can't. Because he doesn't have pure hands. He doesn't have a clean heart. He's not qualified. He's not sanctified. So who will go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for our sins? This is where the writer of Hebrews, praise be to God, tells us, verse 11 through 15, that God is not only is he holy, not only is he righteous, not only is he pure, but he is merciful. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He wants to be with us. He wants us to be with him. But we cannot in our sinful state. There must be a shedding of blood for our sins, an atonement, a propitiation for our trespasses. So thanks be to God. What does God do? He sends his son. Not just born of flesh, but of spirit. He walked sinless, Perfect and absolute obedience to the Father. He is the pure, spotless Lamb. 
And our Lord Jesus Christ comes and says, I'm going to go in. I'm going to be your high priest. Not wearing regal robes like the high priest did, but you know the story. Stripped naked. Beaten on the back 40 times. A crown of thorns shoved upon his head. Carrying the wooden cross to Golgotha and on the cross through his hands and through his feet, nailed to the cross. He did not enter with the blood of bulls and goats. He entered with his own blood. Let me give you a retelling of what happened there. Jesus, on his final day, he went to the cross, rejected and denied by his disciples all alone. And he went in to that place, not with blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood. And remember the story of Christ. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Eloi, Eloi, Lamach Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. Jesus, Jesus, no, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, <laughs> who make atonements for our sins. Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is asking Jewish Christians, would you go back to the first covenant with its rules and regulations for worship and earthly sacrifices? Sacrifices that cannot save, that cannot perfect your conscience, that cannot give you eternal inheritance? He's telling us, far be it from me, for we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has enacted a greater covenant that has provided complete forgiveness of sins an eternal inheritance. And now we can enter into the Holy of Holies with confidence because of what Christ has done for us through the shedding of his blood. Brothers and sisters, do not live in fear of others. Do not live in fear of what the future holds. Do not live in fear of what other people think about you, but rather live in the reverence and the worship of Christ for what he has done as our Savior. Let us pray together.